welcome to the Institute for Conservation Leadership podcast, a conversation about leadership, strategy, and collaboration. I am Kurt Thompson, and I'll be your host today. Welcome to our first of a two-part interview with Sin Sartu, Executive Director of the Gulf Restoration Network. She will be talking with us today about her experience as the first Executive Director at Gulf Restoration Network in New Orleans. Since she started in that role, Sin has had the opportunity to experience not just one, but two different ICL leadership programs. Today, our conversation with Sin will talk specifically about why ICL's executive leadership program was so important to both her and to her organization. We are joined by Sin Sartu, and Sin is the executive director of the Gulf Restoration Network. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Sin, tell us a little bit about yourself. I am the executive director of the Gulf Restoration Network. I have been the executive director since 1995. I was the first employee. I am attorney by training, so I have throughout my career been focused mo- mainly on policy and policy advocacy, not on management. So I am focused in the South, which is a difficult climate to organize in, and so a lot of my work or the work of my organization is based around collaboratives, collaboration, developing collaboratives. And my home is in New Orleans, Louisiana. Tell me a little bit about the Gulf Restoration Network and and how did it start? You mentioned you're the first employee. How did that organization get started? Where did the initial funding come from? And uh, was there a specific issue or need that created the the organization? The Gulf Restoration Network was founded in 1994. It was the brainchild of Earth Justice Legal Defense Fund, which is was at the time Sierra Club Legal Defense Fund. Uh, and we started as a project of that organization. They brought together environmental leaders from across the Gulf and started talking about what need there was, whether there was, you know, what was, was there a need and, and what was it? And those leaders said, there's nothing, no one, no organization focused on regional issues, that we are all so overwhelmed with our local issues that really nobody's looking at the larger gulf and what those issues are. And one of the issues they raised was that a scientist had brought to the attention of the environmental community a thing called the dead zone, which is an area of water which forms every summer off the mouth of the Mississippi River can be as large as eight to ten square a thousand square miles, where the water at the bottom is too low in oxygen to support sea life, and it's caused by pollution flowing down the Mississippi River basin from all of the states that make up that basin, and so it was larger than any environmental group could actually take on in terms of local environmental groups, and so that was actually our first issue. So we were formed out of that. We operated for several years as a project of Earth Justice, and then in around 2000 became an independent organization, and I hired my first additional staff. Uh, and we now focus in, um, to the extent we can, in five different Gulf states on issues of water quality, wetlands loss, and marine mammal protection to the extent we can, largely from seismic exploration or other oil and gas impacts. And we also do a little bit of marine fisheries work. But our predominant focus is water quality and wetlands as it enters the Gulf and affects the Gulf of Mexico as a whole. So are you doing cleanup work? Are you doing restoration work? Are you doing advocacy or what what sort of... We do policy advocacy largely. We do organizing in some communities around policy or campaign issues. We start with sort of a policy focus, which is clean water, clean and healthy water. 
which takes us in that instance to looking at specific permits and the communities impacted by those permits. Sometimes that work is reviewing a permit and going after a polluter. Sometimes the work is going into the community and working with the community around the pollution and trying to determine more larger policy issues or, you know, ways to address or kill a project or, you know, delay a project or make a project better. A lot of times we build coalitions around issues. Um, we did around offshore liquefied natural gas facilities that were going to chlorinate a lot of water and kill a lot of fish. We built collaborations around cutting and making a lot of cypress forests into uh, mulch. Most people don't know that they cut whole cypress forests to make bags of cypress mulch. And so we work on both specific permitting and policy type issues and on organizing communities or coalitions to focus on those issues and try to make policy or political change, I guess you could say. Thinking back to early in your career, what was your first interaction with the Institute for Conservation Leadership? I was working in Seattle, Washington, for a group called Heart of America Northwest that worked on the cleanup of the Hanford Reservation. And I entered the environmental movement as an attorney, so I was a staff attorney. But, you know, I really didn't have knowledge or leadership skills in the nonprofit field. And in a leading from within training was offered, one of the first ever in Washington State. And I participated in that training, which provided me with a lot of skills and understanding what leadership meant and, you know, and how to work within the organ- my organization in a leadership capacity. So that was the first time I ever actually came in contact with the Institute for Conservation Leadership. And that was actually in 1992. When you took the position of executive director at Gulf Restoration Network, did you have a full understanding of what the job really entailed? No. I was hired, as I said, as the coordinator of the Gulf Restoration Network for my policy skills. I have found over time that that's not unusual, even in terms of hiring executive directors, that people are hired, especially within the environmental and conservation community, for their prowess as policy or advocates, policy, you know, policy advocacy or just advocacy and organizing. And um, so I had no idea whatsoever what an executive director actually did. And it was recommended to me that I take or try to get accepted into the ICL's executive director's training. I don't know what it's called now. That's what it was called then. Uh, It was the first ever executive director's training. And I I was actually the only person from the South in the Great Lakes executive director's training. And I can tell you that many of the executive directors that went to that training had to be talked off the ledge because we had no idea what executive directors actually had to do in terms of financial management and board development and fundraising and all the real nuts and bolts of how to run a nonprofit were unknown to most of the people sitting around that table. All we knew was that we would be leading these visionary groups who were going to do wonderful environmental work and, um, And I remember that some of the executive directors in those trainings found out their organizations were in financial trouble as a result of the training. One of the executive directors actually found out that the former executive director had inappropriately spent $60,000 and that she had to raise that money before the end of the year. 
<laughs> it was um, it was quite astounding what some of us actually learned from that training. But it was really good for us to learn that because, as I said, as leaders, that's not why we were hired. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I mean, I think a lot of times, especially back 20, 25 years ago, a lot of people got into that field because they were they came from the advocacy end or else they were doing policy work or they were perhaps doing restoration work. But And, and then natural progression is to move into a leadership role in these new organizations. And so when you say talking people off the ledge when tell me a little bit more about what that really meant well i mean people were terrified they um as i said i mean some of them were all of a sudden led through a balance sheet of their organization and informed that oh you don't have enough money to make it to the end of the year or your budget says you have to raise a million dollars by the end of the year but you know, what you're showing from this balance sheet is you have $300,000 in the bank. Most of us did, had never seen a balance sheet. We did not know how to read a balance sheet. I had never built a budget. In fact, I laughed that the first budget I ever built or put together was for the Pew Charitable Trust, who was, it was pretty hilarious. Thank God I was under another organization working with them because it was like thirty dollars or $40,000 over what it was really supposed to be because I had no... You know, I had no idea how do you build a budget for an organization? What does that really mean in terms of what's the cost versus the, you know, just the most basic things about really would, which would, is corporate management, I guess, or organizational management were unknown to most of us sitting around that table. As I said, I mean, you know, some of, some of us are, had never done fundraising. We didn't know how to run, write a foundation proposal. We didn't know how to do foundation fundraising. I mean, what, what, what are the steps to getting a foundation grant? What are other sources of funding? How do you put together a budget? I mean, these guys want a budget, but what does that mean and what's realistic? For the longest time, I didn't know a budget until I went through this training that a budget has to have the income sources associated with it. I mean, I just thought it was expenses. Okay. I put together what expenses I need, but you know, there's also that income, like you got to determine how you're, you have to have income versus expense. And then you have to have a bottom line, you know, the human resources issues were interesting. How, how do you manage somebody? If you're having problem with somebody, how do you do that? How do you deal with that? How do you do evaluations? What's a 990? Why does it have to be completed? You know, why do you want an audit? Why do you need an audit? Um, just the whole things of little things like what are the lobbying restrictions for a 501c3? I mean, there, there are executive directors who have no knowledge of that. I met an executive director I thought was interesting. The first five years she was executive director, she did not have a budget. And she was just lucky that she got all her money from major donors and they didn't require to have a budget, but she had never had a budget. So it, there are just these basic things about running an organization that many of the people that went to this training with me had never heard of, did not know how to do, and yet they were being expected to run an organization in a fiscally sound way without the tools or the skills to really do that. And I personally think it's why you see a lot of nonprofits get in trouble, especially smaller nonprofits, because it's not people who are ill-intentioned. It's that they haven't got a clue what they're doing. And they start fundraising around something, but they don't know they have to follow a 990 or 
they start doing political work, but they don't know that they're not allowed to do political work. So the executive director leadership program provided you with those tools. Oh, yeah. It was transformational for me because um, as much as I went home, you know, with heart palpitations, it told me (laughs) what I needed to do. Like it, you know, it sort of gave me the materials that if I had to, I could go back and look at those materials and say, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. And the other good thing was that we had consultant hours for overtime. And then you met several months later so you could check back in and go through some more training, but you could bring your problems back. Like, you know, I tried to do this, but I don't get it. And, um, you know, and they, and they gave you different ways to work things. And I really believe that if I had not gone through that training, the GRN would never have gone independent and would not have lasted. It, because I just, I didn't know enough to know how to run an organization. As Sin herself describes, ICL's leadership program was transformational for both her and her organization. If you would like to learn more about ICL's leadership programs, go to icl.org to find out how to apply to our next leadership program. Keep an eye out for more great episodes coming from ICL in the field. We'll be producing more great stories from the community and highlighting the great work that is being done to support the conservation sector. We'll see you all soon.